Would you please stand for the reading of God's word if you're able. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? And I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. Now, please, let the power of the Lord be great, as you've promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live, And as the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, he's followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. This is the word of the Lord. A passage was just read where the disciples said, ask Jesus, teach us to pray. I can say for quite a while I thought prayer was simply talking to God. But I see that if the disciples saw that there was much more than simply talking to God in prayer, where they saw Jesus' prayer life and asked, can you teach us to pray? That there's more to learn about prayer. There's a richness because Prayer isn't simply about talking to God. It's about communion with God and union with God. And so uh, many of you have heard about what's called the acts of prayer, an acrostic that helps us remember four movements that help deepen our prayer lives. The A stands for adoration, where we praise God for who he is. The C For confession, where we look at our sin and we see our sin in the same way God sees our sin. Thanksgiving reminds us of the goodness of God, that the God to whom we are praying is for us. He's on our side. 
And supplication is the request that we make to God. And I know usually that's what I think prayer is about, is my list of requests. Well, that's just a part of the movement of prayer. But we can go even further with another set of acts of prayer. There's argument in prayer. Complaint. Now, by complaint, I mean we, we share our hearts, our frustrations with God, but with an open heart to hearing God's answers, not a condemning word toward him. Talk, just to have conversation. Prayer is union with God. We can share our hearts. We could talk with him in the way. And the last S, submission, where we submit our prayers to the will of the Lord. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. This morning, we're going to look at that second A, argument in prayer. Now, we're not talking about quarreling with God and taking issue with God's nature, his word, his will. It's not like us saying, God, I think you should change uh, your whole concept of sin here. It, people don't, don't like that word today. So let, let's stop talking about sin, God. And in the exclusivity of Jesus, do you realize in 21st century Western culture, that doesn't sell. So Lord, make it everybody, everybody gets into heaven. It's not a quarreling with God, but it's like, a, like an attorney standing before a jury and presenting his argument, presenting a case that's worthy of convincing that jury that you're right. And we see that in Scripture, a number of saints argue their case before God using God's nature, God's promises, God's word, and God's will. It's a deep, rich prayer life that unites us with the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, do teach us to pray. Our desire is to just have a rich, deep, wonderful relationship with you. And so much of that is hearing you speak to us through your word, through, through other believers in Christ, but speaking to you, coming into that, that sweet communion, but also knowing you so fully that we come in union with you and we make the very prayer request that Christ himself would make. Lord, lead us in this path. Help us to develop. Teach us to pray. Amen. Effective prayer is about uniting our wills with God. So God's will is here and, and my will is here. And effective prayer is when they come together and I'm able to be united with God and so God does what I want. And, and that's usually my thought, is that God hears my will and, and I want you to come down and do what, what I want you to do. And we might try to use argument and prayer that way of, God, you got to do what I want to do. But in reality, real effectual prayer is when I grow in my understanding of God, 
who he is, what he's desiring to do, so that my prayers now unite with his will. This whole concept of argument in prayer, as we'll see in the life of Moses, is one where Moses understood God. He had grown so close to understanding the heart and mind of God that his prayer raised to the level of God's will, and he used it to to draw God, to move the hand of God into doing something that would glorify God himself. And so what we want to do this morning is we're going to look at this prayer in Numbers 14. It's on page 122 in your pew Bibles. And we're going to see, look at four things. One, Moses' reason for this prayer. Secondly, the argument that he makes in the prayer. Third, God's response. And then fourth, the application to us today, specifically in our desire to bring the kingdom of God into Metro West, Boston. So Moses' reason for prayer is really he wanted God glorified as God desires. And so he prays that God would keep the light of the Jewish people intact and that his glory would not be compromised. And that's the reason he does this. And and this is the background. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And I'm going to bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Edgar talked today about the light dispelling the darkness and that we need to be that light. Well, God had chosen Israel to be that light, that light that would shine, that would draw people from all over, from all the nations to see the one true God. And in that way, the world would be blessed through them. And so God worked in their lives to build a nation. Now, a nation requires three things. You need people. You need a law, a constitution, and you need a land to be a country. Now, God had already provided the people, uh, only a few handfuls of people with a Jacob and his family went down to Egypt and they were enslaved for 400 years and their numbers swelled to, the estimate is, two and a half million people. Two and a half million Jews were in Egypt. And so God now had built the people, so he freed them, he brought them through the Red Sea miraculously, brought them out to the wilderness. Moses goes to the top of the mountain, he receives the Ten Commandments, he receives the law, and he receives the covenant between God and man. So there, there's the Constitution. Now all that's left is Israel to gain a land. And God had promised a land to Abraham those many centuries before. The promised land. 
And so God was bringing the, uh, the Jewish people through the wilderness, and he protected them, he provided for them, and now they were on the edge of the promised land. And so he's saying, go in, it's yours. The Jewish people said, well, let's send spies in first. So they sent 10, 12 spies into the land. When they came back, every single one of them said that it is a good land. It matches what God promised us. But 10 of the people, 10 of those spies were intimidated by the armies they saw, by the fortified cities they would have to come against. And they began to draw the conclusion, we cannot win this battle. We will be destroyed if we try to fight. And they start to spread that sick word among the people. And the people buy into it. And they collapse in fear. And so the first four verses of this chapter say this. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry. And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword there? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. The people of God had seen the wonders of God's miracles. They had seen God carry them through every need, meet their food needs with the manna and with the quail, provide the water even from a rock, and yet they would not trust God. They would not trust God's word. They were denying God's love. They were denying his goodness, his power, and his leadership. Despite the best efforts of Joshua and Caleb, the, the other two spies, and Moses to convince the people that God would fight for them. He would give them the land. Just as he had miraculously freed them from Egypt, he would win the battle here. Didn't matter. The people were resistant, hardened against God and pushed against his leadership, rebelling, still wanting to go back. And so the Lord says to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs I've done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make you a nation. See, Israel, as the light, was showing the world who God is. See, the greatest apologetic of that day was how a nation thrived. Because each people had a God they were serving. And so how do you know, how did anyone know who the true God was? They would see it by who was the God that won the victory. Who was the people that were most blessed? That's why the book of Deuteronomy is a treaty between God and Israel where 
God says, I'm going to bless you if you're faithful, but I'm going to curse you if you're not. Because as they're faithful and they're blessed, the nations say, look at that God, Yahweh. He wins the battles. He blesses his people. He must be the true God. But if God blessed them when they were disobedient, they would look and say, oh, there's a God who doesn't care about sin. There's a God who you can rebel against. There's a God who you can walk all over. Their testimony, they had to be righteous. They had to follow God, and in that way, true God would be revealed to all of them. But now, their light was not dispelling darkness. It was enveloping darkness. So, God had had enough of their hatred, their disbelief, their rebellion, their sick testimony. His wrath was clearly justified. And so, he tells Moses, I am going to disinherit these people. I'm going to start a new nation. I'm going to start it with you, Moses. You are faithful. It'll be your children, your generations that will be the light to the world. Now, if I were Moses, I'd be like, I like the sound of that. You mean, I'm going to get the glory? It's always going to be said, it's the nation of Bruce? Because Bruce was so faithful, and Bruce's people are the light of the world. Moses wasn't like Bruce. Moses was the consummate servant of God. His heart was united with God. His desire was the glory of God. And so when God, he hears these words, they're shocking to him. How could God disinherit those he's chosen? And so we see his prayer in verse 19. Lord, don't, don't start over with me. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Just as you've forgiven the people from Egypt until now. And so you see he's saying, God, keep this people as your testimony. And then we're going to see his argument for. But let's just pause a moment here and look at this prayer. And look at his request. His request here is seven words long. The prayer itself is over 200 words. Remember from Nehemiah last week, the request of Nehemiah was, Now, Lord, make your servant successful. In the eyes of this man, his request was a half a verse in a prayer that was eight verses long. As I said last week, I look at my prayers and it's like, I think 80% of my prayers are requests and maybe 20% other things. These prayers are 90% about God and who God is and God's relationship. It's about union with God, and the request flows out of that. It's a short, brief request. 
But we do see in it part of the argument that Moses is going to make in his prayer. Look it. He says, pardon them according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven the people. So he's beginning to, I mean, this is actually at the end of his case, but let's look at the two pieces here. Steadfast love, covenant love. You've made a covenant with these people, and you've loved them, and you've your pattern has been to forgive them. Look at how many times they've sinned before, but your steadfast love always led to forgiveness. Do that now. But notice, he doesn't just say your steadfast love. He says the greatness of your steadfast love. See, he's, in his mind is let the greatness of your love be shown. May the world see, not just he's a loving God, but there's a greatness, there's a, a magnitude of his love that is incomprehensible because he wants God's glory. So we see his appeal and his argument in verse, starting in verse 13. Moses said to the Lord, if you do this, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought them out of the land and you've been among them and you've gone with them and everybody knows this. All the nations know that you, Yahweh, are the one who've been with, with this people. They're your people. They know that. But what they're going to say is if you kill this people, verse 15, then the nations who've heard of your fame and are beginning to say that's the true God like Rahab does in the book of Joshua. Instead, they're going to say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them. That's why he killed them in the wilderness. He didn't want everybody to see how impotent he was, how powerless he was against other gods. So he brings them out here, in this safe confinement where only he's working with them, but when, as soon as they have to go against an enemy, he falters. He's afraid. What kind of testimony is that to the world? And that, that's Moses' argument. God, I want your glory, and you will not be glorified. You will be seen as one who can't keep his promises. You will not be seen as a God of love but a God of hatred. You will not be a God who's great, but a God who's weak. And so he was so concerned that God would be seen as inferior, a fraud, God to be mocked, not honored. And so he presents that case to Moses. And then he continues and he says in verse 17, and now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you promised. So we see as he appeals to the, the love of God, he appeals to the pattern of God, he appeals to the glory of God, and now he appeals to the promise of God. And that promise is tied to the nature of God himself. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Now, he's highlighting again God's patience 
in his steadfast love. Now, the word for steadfast love here is the chesed love. It's probably the closest Hebrew word we could get to the agape love spoken of in the New Testament, the unconditional love of God. Because of his covenant and his chosen, with his chosen people, he has unconditional love for them. And he says, God, according to your unconditional love, because you are forgiving, because you are a God of grace and mercy, forgiving iniquity and trans transgressions, I plead with you, be with them who you are, keeping your promises, keeping your covenant, being loving, gracious, and merciful. That's who you are. But, he continues, God will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children, on the children to the third and fourth generations. While he first points to the love, the greatness of that steadfast love, he now points to the justice of God. Something that's difficult, again, in our Western culture. We highlight the love of God, and we believe because God is love, he is going to break, embrace everybody. He will push aside his holiness. He will push aside his justice and just embrace everybody because simply we're people. God does love us. He loves us so much that he sent his son to die in our place so we could have him. So we can be forgiven, but he is also just and he has to condemn sin. He has to judge sin. None of us wants a government where there is no justice. Over and over again, I've said this before, it's our little toddlers who say, that's not fair. They're crying out for justice, and we do over and over and over again. And so we have a God who is loving and also just. And he is going to there are going to be consequences for their sins. And he says they're going to be visited on even the, the children and to the third and fourth generation. Now, these are difficult words for a lot of us because it doesn't seem fair that God would visit the, the, the consequences of sin on future generations. But again, what we're missing in the West is we don't understand because we're such an individualistic society, we don't understand how much God has created humanity to be community. How connected and interconnected we all are. Because God himself is community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he has designed humanity to be community. And there are occasions when there is responsibility that passes among us. Consider, Adam sinned. And because he was our head, his sin is on each one of our accounts in heaven. And each one of us is born a sinner because of Adam. But because of Christ... As he stands as our head, the second Adam, 
what he has done is also passed down to those who believe. He was able to pay for our sins because God is a community, because of that interpersonal connection. And, I mean, God could have done it where we each stand as individuals. Each of us would have been Adam standing on our own. And if that was the case, if I stood on my own before God, as soon as I sinned, there was no hope for me. Because my hope is in Jesus Christ having taken my sin. I am glad I don't have to pay for it, but I have Christ. So I, I think it's great to embrace this whole concept of Adam being ahead and then Christ being our head. It's in, in our country, if the, if the president and Congress declare war, every citizen of the country is at war. It's a community. So what we have here in the nation of Israel the consequences of the sins would be passed down. But they can be reversed. Leviticus, we don't have this verse for the screen, reads this. It says, If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. See, what it's saying is, if, if my fathers have sinned, and the consequences of that are being passed down to me, I can stop that by confessing my sins, but also confessing the sin of my fathers. And then that stops. And that's what we see with Nehemiah. Remember last week? It says, Nehemiah says, please, you know, uh, I, he says, I have sinned and my father's house and the nation. He saw it from a communal aspect. And so the whole domino effect is stopped as soon as we confess, they confessed their personal sin and the sin of their fathers. Why? There to be the light. And if, if I'm a part of that light, but I only c confess my sin, the rest of that light is still tainted with sin and darkness. But it's me and my fathers who are that light. Then that light can be restored. So that's what's happening here. And just another aspect to that is that whole concept is different for us today in the New Covenant. Jeremiah 31, 29 through 30 says, In those days, the days of the New Covenant, they will no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and so the children's teeth are set on edge. What's he saying there? Because what the father's done, there's consequences on the son. He says, no, that's not going to be the case. Everyone shall die for his own iniquity. And so that, that concept was for the Jewish people, the Israelite, that light, not for us. So what's God's response? What Moses has done, he has argued, he's presented a case, that's God's case, according to God's nature of steadfast love, forgiving spirit, and justice, while appealing to the covenant, that Hesed relationship. God. So what's God's response? We read, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. 
Moses, I answer your request. I am not going to disinherit the nation. There is going to be general forgiveness of this nation. They will continue. However, and he said, and, but truly as I live and as the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. What was Moses' biggest concern? That God wouldn't be glorified. That people would mock God because he wasn't able to bring him into the land. And so God's saying, don't worry about that, Moses. I'm answering your prayer. I'm not going to disinherit them. Israel will be the light. I will not be the mocking stars. I will not be the one who's mocked. I will bring the people into the land. That's God's love. That's his keeping the covenant. His justice is seen in the following verses, which say, but those who rebelled against me will not be the ones who enter the land. God's love and justice, they come together. They have to be together. They are for God, they are for Moses, and they should be for us. So, Moses' argument won the day. God was glorified, loving, and just. So, what's the application for us? First of all, I think, as individuals, consider using argument in prayer. Present your case to God, but not your selfish case. Know God's nature. Make your, our prayer requests according to God's nature, according to his word, according to his promises, and most of all, like Moses, may our greatest desire in our prayers be God be glorified. But what does it mean for us today? Uh, our vision, Christ treasured above all things. Moses would agree with that. That's what I want in Metro West and throughout the world. And again, uh, Edgar is one of the examples of Westgate trying to have that message treasured throughout the world. One of the people we've helped support as we support many other missionaries. But today, we at Westgate are concentrating on us being the light to Metro West. Us moving out. And tonight, we're actually having an informational meeting. Everyone who wants is invited to come to this informational meeting about our movement into Metro West, our outreach into Metro West. But we need to lay the prayer foundation, which we have been doing. It's, one of the, it's the reason we're doing a series on prayer, not just prayer, but kingdom prayer. So what does this mean for kingdom prayer? It means that we look at why God would want to reach Metro West. What in God's nature compels us to try to reach God's Metro West? And so I'm going to close with a prayer that argues our case, God's case actually, of why he should work through us to reach Metro West. Let's pray. Lord, our desire is for you to be glorified, that you would be treasured above all else in Metro West. You deserve to be glorified. Hallowed be your name is the prayer of Jesus himself, 
that everyone might see you as you truly are and be honored as you deserve. The heavens and earth declare your glory, O Lord. May we declare your glory to Metro West by the way we live and the words we bring. Lord, you love the people around us more than we do. We want them to experience your beauty, to enjoy you as they were meant to be, to have eternal life. Lord, if this is our desire, how much more so is it your desire for them? Work according to this desire. You, Lord, called us to make disciples. It's your stated desire that disciples multiply. We are hearing your call. But only you can change hearts. We can bring the message, but only you can change hearts. So God, may you make disciples in Metro West using us as we obey your commission to go. Father, you sent Jesus to die for everyone's sins. He already took the penalty for sin. He paid the highest price for sin. May the pain of the price that Christ endured not be cast aside, but may it be applied. Bring person after person to faith so they can receive your forgiveness, they can receive your life. I believe, Lord, that these prayers are like what Jesus Christ himself would pray. Lord, may you hear these prayers. May our hearts be united with yours, hearing your call to make disciples. In Jesus' name we pray.